Hi, this is Sarah. If you like this episode of Let's Talk About Sects, you can listen to my audiobook, Do As I Say, How Cults Control, Why We Join Them, and What They Teach Us About Bullying, Abuse, and Coercion. The audiobook will be available on Audible, Apple Books, Google, and Kobo from the 28th of June. A link is in the show notes. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, how to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, how to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promoting for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Kusizabuntu means the place where people are helped in Zulu. Erica Bornman spent most of her childhood years at the Kwasizabantu Mission. It's located in a beautiful, green, lush part of KwaZulu-Natal, South Africa's Garden Province. What Erica saw and experienced at the mission left scars that will last a lifetime. For her, emotional scars. And for others, physical as well. Erica's memoir, Mission of Malice, is about her childhood and about her life since leaving. It's an incredible read. Daniel Schricker is a composer and writer based in Adelaide, South Australia. He also spent his childhood and teenage years in Kwasizabuntu, and has written a series of articles entitled Scaring the Hell Out of You, quote, a four-part examination of the role of fear in the theology and practices of Kwasizabuntu and the psychological implications for children. This bonus episode is an interview with Erica and Daniel, who were kind enough to share their insights, including why they have doubts that Kwasizabuntu is capable of changing for the better. Welcome to Let's Talk About Sects, a podcast about cults around the world. I'm your host, Sarah Steele. Before we start, a content warning. This episode deals with child abuse, sexual abuse, trauma, and mentions of suicide. Please use your discretion as to whether this will be suitable for you and those around you who may be listening too. I've been in touch with Erica Bornman for some months now, and I knew her book was going to be a riveting read. She was kind enough to send over an advance copy and it blew me away. Mission of Malice, My Exodus from Kwasizabantu, is raw, open, tender, shocking, and incredibly insightful. I made many notes as I read it, and Erica's words brought me to tears a number of times. So it's an honour to be able to share some of her story with you today, and as probably goes without saying, I would really recommend you get your hands on a copy. There's a link in the show notes. Daniel Schricker has a PhD in Things That I Don't Understand Related to Music Composition, his four-part exploration of fear and how it operates in Kwasizabantu is an illuminating read. The four aspects he looks at are fear of God, fear of authority, fear of self, and fear of the outside world. Before Daniel got in touch with me, I had no idea that Kwasizabantu had a presence in Australia. So Daniel's perspective was a perfect accompaniment to Erica's story, and I hope you'll get as much out of our conversation as I did. I started up by congratulating Erica on the publication of her fantastic book, 
and asking how Mission of Malice has been received so far. Sarah, thank you so much for having me on. I'm such a huge fan of your podcast and it's just such an honor to be chatting to you. You know, my book has been received really well everywhere except in one place, of course, which is Kwasi Sabantu itself. I have people, strangers from all over the world um, messaging me and letting me know how much they were moved. But what really, really matters to me particularly is also the ex-members of Kwasi Sabantu who contact me and tell me that the book really helped them in whatever way. So, yeah, it's it's been really well received. Fantastic. That's Yeah, it's, it's kind of the, the motivation I have for the podcast as well is that that sort of feedback that I get, that it really helps people to understand that there are others going through similar things to what they've been through. But it's, yeah, I would recommend this book to anyone. But while I've, I've read it, our audience may not have yet. Daniel, I was wondering if you could tell me a bit about Kwasizabantu in the broader strokes, kind of whereabouts it's located, how many people are involved and some of the key beliefs. Sure. So first of all, thanks for having me on as well. Uh, it's a real pleasure to be here. Yeah, so Kwasizabantu, uh, it's a mission, a Christian mission station in KwaZulu-Natal, South Africa. And it has approximately 1,500 residents now. It's really become a multi-million brand enterprise, mostly because of a very successful water company, Aquele. But they've also got various agricultural projects. They've got a school. They've also got a teacher's training college and, and a number of other things that are located on the mission. So the group was, was founded by a man called Erlo Stegen in 1970, and it really came about as a result of an alleged religious revival which broke out among the Zulus. So they believed that God had come down in a special tangible kind of way to grant them this revival. And this really became the cornerstone of their entire worldview. So the, the revival is still something that they refer to frequently, and it gave them the impetus to kind of subdue any dissension or questioning later on from the membership. So prior to this this revival breaking out and the founding of Crossy's Abantu, Erlo was a, a Christian evangelist, I think a traveling evangelist, and he did that for about 12 years. But he became disillusioned with the lack of success in his ministry. And so he was rather desperate for a spiritual experience to provide some kind of a breakthrough in terms of winning people over to his brand of Christianity. So when this alleged revival occurred, uh, Erlo claimed that many people were supernaturally healed through his ministry. Uh, they even claimed that somebody was raised from the dead. And once once the whole thing kind of got rolling, they they brought in somebody who was relatively well-known within the Christian world who published some books, um, a guy called Dr. Kuat Koch. And through that, the, the work expanded outside of South Africa and it generated quite a lot of interest in Europe and then in Australia as well. So they, they planted a number of churches, but specifically initially it started out just with conferences being held in Europe, which were attended by, by uh, thousands of people once they got going. So that's that's kind of just a little bit of an overview of the history. So in terms of their key beliefs, probably the, the most obvious starting point is their doctrine of confession of sin. And this is a doctrine that just on the face of it sounds fairly innocuous to most Christians because it's a biblical concept. But in, in the case of Kwasi Zabantu, they adopted a soteriological position 
in which they don't really emphasize salvation by grace through faith in the way that um, most evangelical Christians would understand it. So at, at the time of the Reformation, you had this concept of sola fide or faith alone. What, what they've done instead is they've erected this, this doctrinal system where the way that you make it to heaven is essentially by confessing all of your sins, both past and then in an ongoing sense, to the leaders of the group. Now, they, they call the leaders counselors or co-workers, and so that, that was essentially the mainstay of their doctrine and, and the thing that, that really characterizes them as distinct from, from other Christian groups. I mean, it was enforced so seriously that they actually made it mandatory for the, the school students at, at Domino Civite, which is the school located on the mission. So then the, the second key belief that I think is really important and, again, really distinct from what most people would think of in terms of a, the normal religious Christian organization is the laws that surround courtship and marriage. And, and it's, it's important, I think, to state at the outset as well that, you know, these rules, particularly the marriage law, any deviation from that would literally result in expulsion or, you know, extremely severe punishment. So they, they took it very, very seriously in terms of enforcing it. So in terms of the way people get married at Kwasi Zabantu, the, the starting point really is that single men and women are not allowed to have any contact with each other at all, really. So no, no dating, no speaking, uh, no texting, no meaningful interactions other than just sort of passing each other in the church building or, or on the mission and those sorts of things. So the way you get married at Kwasi Zabantu is that a man, when he's kind of at, at the age that he wants to get married, he'll pick a woman who catches his eye. Now, because they weren't allowed to get to know the women on the mission, it was largely based either on looks or position within the organization. But, of course, they, they always framed it in such a way that they would claim that God had shown them to specifically marry this woman. And that really became a little bit farcical because you had situations where women were getting proposals from multiple men and, and things like that. So essentially once once the guy had, you know, laid eyes on a woman that he fancied, he would usually go to one of the leaders, uh, oftentimes Erlo or his brother Friedel Stegen, and he would tell them that God has shown him to marry a specific woman. So then Erlo would go and speak to the woman and inform her of the marriage proposal. And usually the women would be told not to share this with anyone, including their family. So the whole thing was shrouded in a, in a great deal of secrecy as well. They would be told to go and pray, and then they would decide whether they accepted or rejected the proposal. So the marriages weren't arranged in, in the traditional understanding of that word. The, the woman did have some say about accepting or rejecting. And if she did accept, then the engagement would be announced in a church service, in which Erlo would still stand in between the couple to ensure that they didn't, I guess, speak or sneakily hold hands or something. I'm not sure. And during the engagement period, then the couple would still not be allowed to have any contact with each other. So again, no, no texting, no talking, no dating. And when the wedding day arrived, they would speak for the, the very first time at the ceremony. Then they would get married in front of the whole church, uh, no doubt followed by an incredibly awkward wedding night. As part of that, the women were also told that it was now their, their duty to sexually submit to their husbands, and that's kind of how you began your married life together. Erica had a, had something to say about that. Please go ahead, Erica. 
Yeah, so I have personal experience of being proposed to. My first proposal came two days after I wrote my final school exam at the age of 18. And in the two years following that, I had, well, I had three proposals in total. So God kept changing his mind about who my husband was going to be. But what I actually wanted to mention is that I've spoken to ex-members who actually did get married the Kwasi Sabantu way. And it's really important to stress that there was absolutely no sex education allowed or given at any point. I mean... I really didn't know how my body worked, even at the age of 19, when I went to the gynae for the first time. I had no idea, you know, what was going on down there. So the, the people are kept in complete ignorance and masturbation is completely not allowed. So you have to suppress and confess any sexual urges you may have. And then you marry a stranger and suddenly now sex is not only allowed, it's actually mandatory. So I spoke to an ex-member who got married this way, a man, and um, I asked him, so what is the talk? So Elo, the head of the mission, calls the couple in after their marriage, um, on the night of their marriage, and then they are called in separately. He speaks to them about sex separately. So the woman goes in first, and it's two to three minutes, and then she's out. And then then the man gets called in and my friend told me that he was basically told, and I'm sorry if this is a little bit graphic, but he was basically told, uh, you may have trouble finding the hole in the beginning, but it will come right. It might take a few weeks. Then he was told that they're not allowed to use contraception. Contraception is from the devil and to use the rhythm method and a very brief explanation of the rhythm method. And then he was basically, that was it. That, that was the extent of it. There was no talk of arousal or lubrication or anything. His wife told him later that she was told that even if she doesn't feel like it, she needs to submit to her husband because men have sexual urges and it's her duty to, to fulfill them. Yeah. I mean, that's, yeah, really kind of important to understand and quite disturbing from my perspective. Daniel, yes, do go on. Yeah, no, I can absolutely also confirm what Erica said about the, the kind of the submission that's required on the part of the women because that happened in Australia too. I, I do know just uh, like a slightly different perspective. I do know that in Europe, Friedelstegen did allow contraception just because it was something that came up in, in one of the meetings. But he, he tended to have slightly milder views than Ella in, in a number of areas, I think. So, yeah, that's that's really one, one of the things that strikes people as perhaps the most strange about Kwasi Zabantu when they first encounter it. Because, I mean, growing up in this context, it's always presented as normal to you. But, of course, to an outsider, it's, it's rather horrifying. So then just the, the, the final thing that I wanted to mention in, in terms of the the doctrinal system is that really, you know, the entire thing is cloaked in a tremendous amount of fear and the beliefs, you know, whether it's the marriage or the confession or really anything else in terms of their belief system, it, it is enforced through fear. That's essentially why I chose to, to write the four essays on the role of fear in KSB's theology and practices and, and just examine some of the psychological implications for children. So just, just by way of example, you know, one of the ways that they would coerce the children into confessing their sins was they used to show a film called The Burning Hell. And this was put out by a fundamentalist Baptist preacher called Estos Kierke. And, um, I mean, it really 
plays like the B grade horror film, but it's, it contains incredibly distressing images, you know, that would really imprint on the, the psyche of a child. So their entire theology at the center of it is this God that is almost exclusively depicted as, as a harsh taskmaster who doles out the severest kind of punishment for the most minor infractions. And in order to set the children up to follow the rules, they used incredibly brutal punishments, which actually I would now just characterize as physical and psychological torture. You know, they administered beatings for any deviation from the rules and really horrifying beatings. I've read that they used threats of cutting off children's hands, and then they would also just use public humiliation as a way to sort of get, get the children to conform, and even at times the adults. So that's that's probably the the main things to to know about their their worldview just starting out. Yeah, and obviously it's it's a huge subject and there's an awful lot more. But I yeah I remember reading in your essays it was there was a I can't remember quite how you put it, but it's it is really difficult for someone outside of that world to really get your head around what that must feel like for a child. I think it was specifically you were talking about if you hadn't confessed then done something sinful, then you were going to hell. And so what if you were going to bed at night and you'd done something sinful before you had a chance to talk to your counsellor again, then you thought, what if something happened in the middle of the night and you would just go to hell because of this? It's hard to understand how terrifying that might actually feel for a child. Yeah, absolutely. And so even like in the Australian branch of of Kwasizabantu, they didn't have the same physical and child abuse in terms of beatings and things like that, but they absolutely had the same set of doctrines. So, I mean, I remember wrestling with that anxiety just, you know, in, in relation to God and, and confession and all of these things. And I, I mean, it really created some significant psychological problems, not just for me, but for other people that I knew in the church. Oh, absolutely. You know, I, <clears throat> I've spoken to many ex-members and uh, let's call them survivors who also said that they would also obsessively write down any sin before they went to sleep, hoping that if they died in their sleep, which is something the mission told you often happens, um, you know, God could come and take you at any time. And so you never knew when you went to sleep whether you'd wake up the next morning. And they would obsessively write down their sins in their diary, hoping that God would accept that because they didn't manage to see their counselor before they went to sleep. And sin could be something as simple as I felt a little bit of irritation at being asked to do this, or I pulled a face when my mother asked me to do the dishes, or, you know, really, really stupid, tiny little things. And you would lie awake in fear because you didn't manage to confess it. Mm. And I mean, th- those were kind of the minor things in the the South African school context that might get someone a pretty severe beating as well, right? Yes. Erica, in terms of your personal experience with Kwasi Zabantu, it was your parents that made the decision to join. So you were brought in as a, a young child. And I wondered if you could just tell me a bit about how you came to leave and what you what what you left with. Yes, yeah, so yeah, I was I was kind of eight nine years old when we were first introduced to Kwasi Zabantu by our parents. My father died when I was fifteen. I do believe that 
that I think if he had realized the full horrors of what happened to children there, he he wouldn't have been so enthusiastic about the place. But I I never told him what what they did to the children, and I asked my brother, and he also didn't. It's like we were trying to protect our parents from their bad decision, which is something that we both kind of regret doing. But you know what? When you're a child, you you think that you can make everything better um, and you don't realise even that it's abuse because... Well, you and know. also if you're being punished in that severe kind of way, I'm sure you internalise that you've obviously done something very wrong to deserve it. Oh, absolutely. I believed I was bad and evil and they actually tell you that, you know. Aylor stated it so many times from the pulpit that you have to break the spirit of a child by the age of three. And in my time, they used beatings to do that and psychological fear and the, the threat of eternal hell and the threat of communists as well. But so for me, I matriculated at the school at Kwasasabantu in South Africa, and I was immediately given 45 little five-year-olds to teach English. So at the age of 18, I became a teacher. I was being sexually groomed and molested by my counselor, who was a male, this is the other thing is is the the counseling really allows for a lot of sexual abuse to happen because the children are in complete ignorance and their counselors have one-on-one sessions with them at all times of day and night where there is nobody else present. So I was being groomed and molested and my um, my dad's brother Chris at the time they were living in Sweden and he came to visit and saw the place. And then he said to me, I was speaking French and German, and he said the best way to do to really get to know a language is to, is to spend time in France and Germany. And he did this because he really felt that he needed to get me out of there. And my mother allowed me to go. I was 20 years old. My mother allowed me to go on the provision that I spend time with people in Europe who are part of Kwasasabantu. And so I did that. But, and I spent nine months there. My aunt and uncle then offered to pay for my university tuition at at the University of Maastricht in the Netherlands because I really wanted to become an interpreter at the United Nations. And I phoned my mother very excited and she said, no, you told me you're coming back in January, so you are coming back in January. Now, by this stage, I was already 21. But I didn't know that I was allowed to make my own decisions for myself as an adult because at Kwasisabantu, for a girl, she is the responsibility of her parents and she has to obey her parents until the day she gets married. And then she has to start obeying her husband. So because I wasn't married yet, because I somehow dodged three proposals, I still don't know where I got the courage from to tell Elo to his face that, no, I don't want to marry these men. But anyway, I'm very glad I did. Um, so because I wasn't married, I had to obey my mother. So I dutifully came back to South Africa and I was going to just start teaching at the school again. Because back then, Domino Suvite had unqualified teachers teaching the students. So what happens if you've been away for a long time? You kind of come back and then you have to go and greet all the important people. And you have to go and say hello, and I'm back. And then they ask you questions, and you answer. Anyway, so I went to greet this man, my counselor, Muzi Gunene, and he pinned me against the wall and groped and kissed me. And I just thought, I cannot live like this. 
uh, it's a long story, but I thought that I was the evil one, that he was doing this to me was because I was the evil one. And so I phoned my dad's sister in Peter Marisburg, which is a town 120 kilometers from Kwasi And I said, Iris, please, can I come and visit? And she said, of course, my child. And so I, my mother had to give me permission to get a lift to go to Peter Marisburg because I had never been taught to drive and we didn't have a car. So I had to get lifts if I went anywhere. And she believed I was only going for two nights. And so I packed a tiny little bag so as to not arouse suspicion. And when I got to my aunt, I just said, I can't go back there. And then she allowed me to live in her home and I, and I found a job and that's how I managed to get out. And and you came out with clothes for the short trip or something? Yeah, I did I did go back a few times to go and see my mother and then I managed to get a few more clothes. But, you know, honestly, those aren't clothes that you really want to wear in the outside world anyway. So, yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's very, their um, clothing regulations are very strict, you know, nothing showing too much skin. Your dress has to have sleeves. It can't be too low cut. It has to be below the knee. You can't show off too much of your figure. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, it's something I've been thinking a lot about is this, it happens in so many of these similar groups uh, where a, a young girl is blamed for being a, a temptress for men, even though she's really taught that she is uh, second to men in every other way. And it's, again, I guess hard for, for me to really put in my mind what that must feel like, but you, yeah. it makes sense that you blame yourself because you've been told that that is your fault if that happens. Absolutely. And he's a man of God. And men mm. of God are, are pretty infallible at Kwasi Zavanti. Just while we're on it quickly, uh, do you mind telling me very briefly what happened to that particular counsellor afterwards? Oh, yes. So he left of his own volition, even though another ex-member, Kwes Grief, told me that since 1982, he had been warning Erlo about this man's sexual um, misconduct. What happened to me happened in 1987 to 1993, and he eventually left in the 1990s of his own volition uh, to make his way in the world. And he then, he, he is a convicted murderer and he is in jail at the moment uh, for murdering an estate agent. He got his son and I think two of his son's friends to help him murder this woman. And then he tried to get money out of her, uh, out of her account. And then when his son decided to turn state witness, he attempted to kill his son. So he's in jail at the moment. Some interesting. He was considered such a man of God. Yeah. Yeah. And so, Daniel, I wondered if you, because before I heard from you, I'd been in touch with Erica for a little while, but I had no concept that Kwasi Zabantu was also in Australia. So that uh, was a surprise to me. So I was wondering if you could tell me a bit about your own personal involvement and whereabouts it was uh, and, you know, the, the age that you left. Sure. Yeah, so I, I had contact actually with the, the three main kind of groups of Kwasi's Zabantu, if you will. So I was actually born in Germany and uh, my initial exposure to, to Kwasi's Zabantu was that by the time I was born, my my mother was attending their European conferences and they, they had gained a fair bit of traction at this point. 
So I might just sort of go through each uh, area on its own. Mm. And so in terms of the religious context in Europe in the 80s, it was such that you had a substantial number of Christians who were feeling somewhat disillusioned and caught between the extremes of the more nominal forms of Christianity like found mm-hmm. in some of the traditional church services. And then on the other side, you had the more excessive aspects of the charismatic movement, which was very popular at the time. And in general, the more serious-minded Christians were reacting against the kind of antinomianism that was prevalent. And they were seeking a form of, of religion that was serious, but also promoted an experiential Christianity. And so it was into this context that Erlo Stegen entered and promoted the revival. And I think just because there, there was kind of a group of people looking for something like it, that the movement gained traction there quite quickly. So for me personally, my, my mother just happened to be given a tape by Erlo Stegen. And then in sort of just inquiring more about him, uh, she discovered that he happened to be traveling through Germany at the time. And uh, along with my father, they went to hear him speak on a number of occasions. And my father gradually became more apathetic towards Kossi Bantu, but my mother and my sisters and I, uh, we attended the European conferences regularly in my early childhood. And although I don't think this was the reason why my mother felt so drawn to, to KSB, once she had gotten involved, the, the group and the conferences also became somewhat of an escape for her because she was married to a narcissist. Um, the, the leaders there provided some kind of emotional support in listening to her, counseling her, and also the, the sense of community, of course, was very appealing you know, to, to someone that's kind of trapped in, in an emotionally difficult situation because of her husband. Mm. And so eventually the, the work in Europe grew to such an extent that they uh, not only founded a number of KSB churches, but they also founded a, uh, founded a school. And my parents actually almost ended up sending my sisters and I uh, to one of the schools there that for some reason that didn't materialize. And interestingly, I've just recently heard that, that the, the school that was opened in Europe is under investigation for uh, child abuse as well. Mm-hmm. So it's, um, it's going to be interesting to see what, what happens there. So in terms of South Africa itself, which, which was kind of the headquarters of the whole thing, we, we moved there in, in 96. So I was five years old at the time. And my mother worked at the radio station on the mission, which was called Radio Crazy, or is called Radio Crazy, it still exists. And my sisters also attended the, the school, Domino Savite. Uh, I also visited the mission again uh, one more time in 2005 for about a month. And that happened to be during their, their mid-year youth conference. So I, I got to experience some of what happened for that as well. But the majority of, of my time in, in KSB was in the Australian branch, which is located in the Adelaide Hills. And I was part of that congregation between 99 and 2008. Like, like I said earlier, they didn't have the same level of brutality just in, in the form of like physical violence being inflicted on children uh, and mm-hmm. that kind of thing. But they followed virtually all of the same dogma of South Africa and in some respects even took it to a greater extreme. So they, they were much more fearful um, at that time. They were much more fearful of education than the people in South Africa were. So I left uh, just before I turned 18, after I confronted the, the leaders of the Australian branch, really just over what I regarded as problematic doctrine and, and the mistreatment of some of the members within the church. And I was fortunate to 
be able to leave with my whole family. So thankfully we weren't split up. And because they had had the same disagreements that you had had? Uh, essentially, yeah. So we, the, the one, the one nice thing about my family is that we've always been able to communicate pretty openly with each other. And so it was really just through a process of discussion that we, we were kind of reaching a consensus on things. Uh, one of my sisters had always been unhappy in the church because she was bullied by, by her peers. So she'd never really been particularly happy there. And for my other sister, the, the tipping point for her was that she received a proposal in the way that I described earlier, mm-hmm. according to the KSB system. I think it opened her eyes a little bit to, you know, what was really going on, because when she declined the proposal, some of the leaders told her that if she didn't get married with the KSB way, that she could expect a marriage like her mother, which mm-hmm. was an incredibly cruel thing to say, because, you know, my mother was stuck in a very unhappy marriage at that so, yeah, that's that's kind of um, how we all came onto the same page, as it were. That's really fantastic that you were able to leave together, although, yeah, I know that doesn't mean that <laughs> there are no issues afterwards. And, Erica, your your book doesn't end with your leaving story but spends a lot of time on the, on the aftermath and your journey to speaking out as well as the ramifications of speaking out. It deals a lot with your ongoing trauma and trying to navigate life after a childhood of being taught your worthlessness, particularly as a woman. I've spoken to many women now who came out of cults and ended up in abusive relationships, as you wrote about with your marriage, even though it was many years after leaving. And there was a passage I wondered if you could just read out. Yeah, sure. And and Sarah, you've touched on something really important, and that is that leaving a cult or a a high control group doesn't automatically mean it's over. It's actually the start of probably the hardest part because in Mm. the cult you're taught what to think and told what to do and here now suddenly you're, you're out in the world that you had been taught to fear and you've got to live your life. But yeah, getting back to, getting back to my sense of womanhood, this is the passage in the book. After a lifetime of silencing my intuition when it comes to men, I've grown really good at ignoring red flags. I don't realize it, of course. I like to think that I've become more enlightened. But the indoctrination I got at Kwasisabantu, that women are inferior to men, that we have to guard against leading men astray, that we're whores, sluts, and Delilahs, left an indelible impression. This, despite the fact that intellectually I've known for years that their ideas about gender roles are totally unsound. That was one of many passages that's that stuck with me. I've kind of copied and pasted a bunch just to go back over because I think you just ha- have a way of putting things that makes it really understandable. And I wondered if you could just tell me a bit more about this kind of cognitive dissonance between being able to recognize gender equality as a sound concept, but still being trapped into these damaging patterns in your own relationships that were still really rooted in what you were taught throughout your childhood? Yes. So I turned 50 this year and I ran away. I left at the age of 21. So that's a long time out in the world, you know, and it was, I got married at the age of 47. And it was in that year of marriage with an emotionally abusive man that I completely lost myself. It got to the point where 
I had obsessive suicidal ideation. It wasn't that I wanted to die. I just felt like I no longer knew how to live. And what I realized, I, I, I've managed to get out of that marriage, mainly because I was in therapy. I started going for therapy because I wanted to kill myself. And what I realized was that I had basically recreated the Kwasisabantu inside my own home with an authoritarian mm-hmm. male telling me what I'm allowed to do, what I'm not allowed to do, and and telling me how bad I was and how evil and selfish and horrible I was as a person. And it was in therapy that I realized that as a child, my personal boundaries had been demolished. The people who were supposed to be taking care of me were the people who were abusing me and who I was fearful of and that that I was trying to please them all the time. And so I had no personal boundaries as a child. And as an adult, I didn't have the tools to create them. So I kind of I made a beautiful life for myself and and intellectually I mean I'm a I'm a I'm a fierce feminist but I hadn't translated that into really healing those deep 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 wounds um as a child and and I I think what I was doing and and I mean I I did the best I could and we all do the best we could but I was kind of more slapping layers of paint on a crumbling structure thinking now this looks better. Oh, yes, that's better. But the structure behind these paint that I was painting was crumbling. And it was it was in therapy. And, oh, my God, thank God for good therapists, the way, that, where I realized that I did not believe myself worthy of love. And I believed that I deserved to be treated badly because I believed that I was bad. And the, mm. the the day before I turned 50 in August this year, I I watched the sunrise and I started crying, but it was a good cry because I realized for the first time in my life, I actually like who I am. I like mm. Erica. I don't feel the need to pretend to be anyone. I don't feel that I have this darkness inside me that I need to not show people and not let somebody close because they're going to see this evil wickedness inside me. I now know that I am a really good person and I'm a lovely person and I'm, I, I like myself. And, and it's taken me almost 30 years after leaving the cult to get to that point. Oh, it's um really, it's heartwarming to, to hear that you've come to that point, but it's like heartbreaking to hear that it took so long because mm. um you seem like an incredible person to me and it's just terrible that that environment had caused it to be so difficult for you to be able to realize that. And I think it also really speaks to how important it can be to find a good therapist. And I know from speaking to so many people who've come out of cults that that is not often an easy thing to do, uh, to find someone who can really understand exactly what it is that you've been through as well. Yes. And, and Sarah, You know, there are so many people walking around with these really deep wounds. And in South Africa, you know, as in many countries, but in South Africa especially, many people aren't 
aren't financially able to seek mm. therapy, you know, even if they could find a really good therapist who is trauma informed, they don't have the money to go for therapy. And my biggest desire is to somehow be able to create something. Um, and I don't know what shape that is going to take, but I think my book is a starting point where, mm. where these wounded adults can, can, can come and, and find just glimmers of hope and and tools to to help overcome this extreme hamstringing that Kwasi Sabantu did to all of us. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and with a lot of cults, people are taught within those cults that actually psychologists are evil in and of themselves, so it can stop people from getting that kind of help afterwards too. I mean, there are so many blockages to getting the help that's needed. Another one I think about a lot is, you know, some groups work so hard to shut down any support networks that happen through ideas around defamation or that kind of thing, which is just, (laughs) I find very frustrating that coming out of a highly controlling group, you can't even have a support group of other people to talk about your experiences with because it's been shut down by the cult. Mm. Mm. That's going to make me jump ahead to a question I had for you, Daniel, because there was something you wrote about in your series of essays that touched on some of what Erica was just speaking about uh, around her sense of self, which I might actually have you read that out as well, if I if I could. Yeah, so I've written psychologically the constant emphasis on the children's alleged failings and sins by those in authority means that they grow up with almost no healthy sense of self. Anxiety and insecurity are the norm, and simple tasks can feel overwhelming due to the pervasive fear of failure or doing something wrong. That really struck me, and I have found that fear is pretty much always present in cults and it's an incredibly effective tool of coercive control in all of its forms. I guess in relation to your essays, it's a big question, but I wondered if you could tell me a bit more about this uh, on the level of the the confessional system and the public shaming, which you explored a bit in, in those essays. Yeah, certainly. So in terms of the confessional system, it's something that's inextricably linked to their view of God's character. Most of the people at Kwasi Zabantu have absolutely no sense of certainty about being in God's graces, and they feel this constant pressure to work to stay up to date with their confession in, in order to get some semblance of divine favor, really. And so that's, that's the theological aspect of it, but then there's also a psychological component. And so bear in mind that confession is the primary way that you avoid hell in their worldview. Then on top of that, they define certain aspects of humanity as, as being sinful. So, for example, as an adolescent, you're taught that if you have a crush on the opposite sex, that's sinful. And Eric has already pointed out that so are any feelings of sexual arousal. Mm-hmm. And any time you, you breach this rule, you're required to confess it to one of the leaders or pastors. And that's really the only way you feel any sense of absolution. So you're caught in the cycle in which normal feelings, which are just part of your humanity, become inextricably linked to, to feelings of fear and shame and guilt. So that's, that's kind of more on the, the private level. And then in terms of the public shaming, there were really two elements to it. So, Firstly, there's the, the psychological duress that causes people to feel like they have to publicly humiliate themselves to atone for their sins. 
just just by way of, of example, when we were members of the Australian branch, I remember my sister at one point got up after a Sunday service and publicly confessed to the entire congregation that she felt her facial expressions were sinful in some sense. And now my, my sister was, was an introverted, uh, shy person at, at that time. And so you can imagine the, like, you know, the, the torment and anguish that she must have gone through to feel like she had to do this. But then at times there was also the public shaming done by others, which was either done by the leaders or even just by other members of, of the, the church. And so, for example, when my sisters attended Domino Civite, the, the school in South Africa, they recall a girl being forced to wear a, a tail and a sign around her neck which said, I am a tattletale, which strikes me as particularly ironic because... Tattletales were surely encouraged. <laughs> right. No, normally they did encourage that. So I'm I'm not sure why that happened in this particular instance. But it's it's really that these sorts of behaviours and the emotional control that's taking place within Kwasi's Abantur, where I, I think something like uh, Dr. Stephen Hassan's bite model really does apply in terms of characterizing them as a cult. And for anybody who's interested to know more about that, just do a quick Google search and there's a lot of information. If I may venture a guess why that a girl was forced to wear a sign that said she's a tattletale was that she told somebody something that happened at school that was possibly done to her or mm. um, or done to a pupil and she told somebody an, an adult or somebody who then questioned their behavior, the, the school's behavior. And that's, mm. that's the only thing that makes sense for me because we were absolutely encouraged. In fact, we were told that we'd go to hell if we didn't snitch on our friends. Yeah. And that would explain also why you hadn't been telling your parents about what was going on. You wrote about, uh, people not really being able to have real friendships with each other because even if in a moment you might both agree on something that was a question you had about what was going on around you or having a bit of a moan about something like is a very normal thing to do, sometime in the future the other child might decide that actually, oh, that was a, a sinful thing to do and and tell on you anyway. I can't remember quite how you put it, but I don't know if you can explain that a little better than I've managed to. Yeah, so sin it's not just your sin that you have to confess. So if I, for example, saw my friend looking at a boy and I didn't confess that I had seen and witnessed sin, or if she told me that she had seen a sweet lying around and she had eaten it, and it, but it wasn't her sweet, so that is stealing – um, and I, I knew about it and I didn't confess her sin, then I was as guilty in the eyes of God as she was. And if God decided to take me that night, I would go to hell because I knew of her sin and I didn't confess it. So what mm. they do is it's a very effective way of keeping tabs on everyone. Because let's say that I did find a kindred spirit in someone who, like me, wanted to perhaps rebel against something, or we made secretly made fun of one of our teachers because he was so sanctimonious. But then two weeks later, she might be sitting in church and be struck with this wave of guilt 
And she might then confess all of this to her counselor. And I didn't confess it to my counselor. So, oh my word, the, the punishment for that is insane. Yeah. I just wanted to add to that some, something that's quite important too is that they didn't really have any kind of a professional concept of confidentiality when it comes yes. to the, the confessional system. So mm. um, now it's it's not that they would like broadcast everybody's sins every Sunday or something, but I definitely recall in, in the Australian branch the, the pastor publicly disclosing a, a sin of, of quite a private nature in front of all of the, the young adults and, and teenagers. And it was just a complete lack of professionalism in terms of pastoral care. And I, I know for a fact that, um, that there are people that have told similar stories at Crosses of Antu about you know, public shaming in that way without the, the, the person who has confessed giving, giving permission for that to be disclosed. In fact, in, in the one chapter, if I may be so bold as to, as to read something from, from one of my chapters, it came to my attention that the, the black children had had it so much worse than me mm. as a white girl, and I was spared a lot. And mm. they would, the black children would be called, uh, this, these are the pupils of Domino Civite and Kwasi Sabantu in the late 80s and, and 90s. They would be called into meetings on Saturdays. And the children would be called to the room and made to sit down. The adults would then take a confession of one of the children that one of the children had made to a coworker who would announce it to the gathered assembly. The confession would be openly discussed and a coworker would preach so that if you were hiding a sin, you would feel so guilty, my friend recalled. And then one of the children would stand up and start telling on other pupils. And then it would go from there, a chain reaction. Another would say something and so on. And the moment you were fingered as or pointed out as someone who had sinned, you got a public beating in front of mm -hmm. all the other children. And I just want to make a point about these beatings is that if you're my age, you probably had hidings from your parents or at school, six of the best or whatever. This is physically two adults holding down a child and a third adult standing above the child and raining blows down on them with a plastic plumbing pipe that very often was filled with sand to make it heavier. And these children were often beaten until they bled. They were bleeding. The, the blows would just rain down on them. Some of my friends are walking around with physical scars on their backs, buttocks, and their thighs from these beatings. But they would all start with a confession being told to the assembly. So the, the confessions were not sacred the way we understood it and I mean co-workers who left after I left confirmed to me that some of my confessions were discussed in co-worker meetings mm. yeah and we should be clear that Kwasi Zabantu now says that these beatings no longer take place is that correct that is correct I I, I do think they've stopped beating children in public mm. People I've spoken to who have left Kwasisabantu in the last two years, however, they, they claim that their children are still getting hidings there. Daniel, you, you reviewed Erica's book and you mentioned that you had a really strong visceral reaction to a passage in there that was an emotionally traumatic event which was triggered by the simple act of being asked to make a fruit salad. And I was wondering if you could tell me a bit about how this resonated with you and what this story was. Yeah, sure. 
So uh, essentially what Erica is describing so succinctly in, in the prologue of her book uh, with that particular incident is a form of imposter syndrome. And that seems to be something that happens quite a lot in these types of high control groups, particularly for people that are, that grow up there in their, in their formative years experience that kind of level of control. Because you realize that every move you make is under scrutiny and that if it doesn't conform to the dogma of the, the church, there's going to be serious ramifications. I mean, as, as you've just heard Eric talk about, you know, very, very, uh, serious physical ramifications, in fact. But, but more than that, there's, you, you've got this theological framework where, you know, there's this malevolent, omniscient God who is constantly watching you. And he's also waiting to punish you severely for the most minor misdemeanors. So, you know, I can recall vividly in my mid-teens uh, developing a, a form of scrupulosity, which is essentially just a religious form of obsessive compulsive disorder, because you're just constantly living in, in terror of God punishing you for your sins. And it's, it's really just in the imagination of a child or an adolescent, you know, you kind of just imagine the worst at that point in terms of what that's going to look like. And so just by way of example, I remember not long after I left the group, while I was studying, I, I started a, a menial cleaning job and uh, experienced my first panic attack because even the, the thought of, of something as simple as just like cleaning a, a shop was enough to kind of fill me with, with terror because, yeah, just, just these very simple, basic day-to-day tasks um, become overwhelming because of the yes. anxiety and, and the, the, the culture of fear that you've, you've grown up in. Mm. And so as, as I kind of made my way in the real world, it, it became increasingly apparent to me just how pervasive the psychological damage had been that the, that the church had uh, created. And you're, you're cast adrift in, in this world where you're suddenly confronted with, with friendships and study and work and dating and the realization that you, you don't really have the tools that most people have acquired by this stage of life. So in my case, the, the anxiety and depression that accompanied all of that became so severe that I had a complete nervous breakdown, which, which actually almost claimed my life at one point. Mm. And so people people don't quite realize oftentimes, I think, with these types of group, groups, how all-encompassing the, the, the fear and the psychological trauma is. So you would, you would probably never imagine that asking somebody to make a fruit salad, for example, would be in any way difficult especially somebody that's in their 20s but but that's that's really how how deeply the, this fear gets embedded in in people's psyches you know at pluses of Antwerp. so then of course that can apply to bigger things as well though so for, for me it, it really just took the form of, of a lack of self-confidence in, in general and i've particularly found completing my phd that that was a real psychological uh, battle for me just specifically in that context, because when you're doing doctoral research, there's, there's kind of this expectation that you're going to be making a significant contribution to your chosen field. And at the same time, I'm battling, you know, these serious kind of self-doubt, doubting my ability to have anything meaningful to say in, in general, let alone in an academic oh. sense. And so e- even now with something like having completed the PhD, there's, there's still a struggle to recognize the legitimacy of a contribution like that just because of how people are taught to view themselves growing up in that context. Absolutely. You know, even I got the book deal and I needed to start writing and I spent about two months in abject fear that 
that I couldn't do this. And then even after I had finally handed in the book and it was actually at the printers, I would lie awake at night petrified that it simply wasn't good enough and that 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 people were going to look at it and go, what on earth is this woman saying? Like, how how could she write a book? You know, like, and it was only... And thank you, Daniel, for that um, absolutely amazing review that you wrote of my book. And that really helped me to see that actually I did, I, I did a good thing, you know. And I, and 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 the book is a is a is a. When people say to me it's a lovely read, I'm I'm almost moved to tears because I just didn't think that that I could, you know. And of course, writing a book is kind of a big deal, as you would know, Sarah. Um, I'm <laughs> so looking forward to yours. Um, but it was very, in the beginning, it was even simple tasks like peeling a fruit. I felt that if somebody, if nobody had ever shown me how to do it correctly, I would do it wrong. I've been thinking a lot about shame recently. And I think that shame, you know, it's it's such a human instinct to want to try to avoid the feeling of shame. And I often think with with some of these damaging groups, it's the avoidance of shame that's really pushing them to never invite any questioning or never take any criticism and any of that kind of thing. But also uh, what kind of stops them in some ways from being held to account is the shame that so many people feel on coming out for having been involved with such a group or, or perhaps things that they might have done while they were involved. So I thought, Erica, I wondered if you could tell me a little bit about how you managed to overcome some of that shame in, in writing the book. And in that, I'm thinking specifically of the the story that you shared about having participated in beatings with the, the children that you were teaching. Oh, yeah. I mean, that, that is something I think I will feel shame about until the day I die, even though I understand why I did it. So I was given these 45 little children, 44 of them were Zulu speaking, and one was Afrikaans speaking. And I had to prepare them to start their schooling in English. And after a, a, a while, I was asked why I wasn't giving these children hidings. And I said, well, but I don't think that they need hidings. Um, you know, they, they, they are actually quite obedient and they listen to me. And I was told that, no, I, I had to, and that I was preventing them from going to heaven by not mm. beating the devil out of them. And so mm-hmm. when the, it's mainly the boys, when they got particularly unruly, I would give them hidings and it never, it never sat right with me, but I absolutely participated in the abuse. I never beat them to my memory. I never beat them excessively, but even one slap is excessive. And, and I, I, when I wrote my book and the reason I included it in my book and other things is I feel it's important to not paint myself as this, you know, martyr or, or, or minimize what I've done wrong in my life. And I needed to say that, 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 that I participated at first I was a victim and then I became an abuser myself. It's, it's an awful thing to live with, but what has helped is is really just 
understanding why I did it. So before I wrote the book, I felt so much shame about it that I didn't really even want to acknowledge that I'd ever done that. And then I realized that that shame actually belongs to Kwasi Sabantu. Um, and yes, I, I am responsible for my actions, but I, I did it because I was told and I believed that I needed to do what I was told. And the same with the, the sexual shame that I actually still grapple with. And I think anyone who has experienced any kind of sexual abuse, including grooming, will understand that shame. And I know that that shame belongs to Muzi. And I'm actively working to not be ashamed. And I'm very lucky to have a partner at the moment who I can speak very freely about these things. And it's helping me lift the shame that I feel around arousal even. Mm. But yuch, shame is a big thing. Yuch, I, 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 I don't think I have the answers to any of that. No, but I think it is, it's, yeah, it's important to, to be able to acknowledge it. And, but also as a demonstration of what, things good people can do in these situations that they never would have otherwise done in other circumstances. That's not something that ever would have come naturally to you by any means, obviously. Yeah. And shame festers in silence. And if you, Mm. if you, if there is something, I think my advice would be that if there is something you feel deeply ashamed about is find a way to discuss it with somebody that you trust. Because the moment mm-hmm. you shine a light on shame, it shrinks. Mm, I think that's really good advice. And you you also just uh, mentioned the shame around the the sexual abuse. And that kind of takes me to another passage that I'd pulled from your book uh-huh. for you to maybe read out. Yeah, I have it. Um, this is again from my book. Neither women nor children have a voice. And because there is a ban on sex education, children, especially girl children, are not taught that when someone touches you inappropriately, you speak up. You know that something is wrong, but you don't know what exactly. And this is a man of God who is touching you inappropriately, but you're not 100% sure that he's touching you inappropriately. And how could he be touching you inappropriately when he's a man of God? So whatever is inappropriate here is obviously inside you. You are evil. You are bad. You are just the worst person on earth. Firstly, because you're a woman. And secondly, because this is a man of God, you are completely, totally, utterly vulnerable to abuse. You have no boundaries. You have no knowledge. You have no voice. I just thought that was such a powerful statement about the the dangers of that approach, which is quite common to a fair few religious practices in terms of sex education and, well, a lack of sex education for children. And so I just wondered about your thoughts around sex education and whether it should be mandatory. Absolutely. Um, it, I, I believe it should be mandatory. If you don't educate your child about sex, you are throwing her or him to the wolves because there is no empowerment to go, hang on, this isn't right. And this shouldn't be happening to me. And one of the reasons Domino Civite was established, and I believe it's actually one of the main reasons Domino Civite was established at Kwasi Sabantu was because the South African school system at the time was considering and talking about introducing sex education into schools in South Africa in the 1980s. And Kwasi Sabantu just thought, not our kids, you know, they're not going to get sex education. 
I mean, it went so far at Domino Savite when I was there that they would either glue shuts any of the biology textbooks, chapters that dealt on reproduction, even animal reproduction, and was, was like either cut out or glued shut. You know, it was, there was literally, I mean, it is so disempowering because as you become a teenager and an adolescent, as you, as you go through puberty, your body changes. The extent I knew of what menstruation is was my mother giving me a pack of pads and saying, that's blood, it's going to happen every month and this is what you do and now you really have to stay away from boys. Boom. Mm. Like nothing else, you know. So that's not even sex education. That's just an education about how the reproductive organs in my own body works. And when children don't, learn these things they're gonna learn it from whispered conversations if they're lucky to to be able to hear whispered conversations about sex or they're going to they're going to completely shut down their sexuality and that has ramifications for the rest of your life Mm. and we mentioned this a little bit already but even even if there were sex education when you managed to raise the issue of the kind of grooming that was happening and the abuse mm. that was happening in your own personal experience, you were essentially blamed and the responsibility was was placed on you to stay away from your abuser, which, you know, in a place where women are taught that they're to be obedient to men in all other circumstances, I find it really hard to understand how how it can be taught at the same time that it is your fault and the onus is on you. And I just wondered if I mean, if either of you have any understanding of how that perspective works for for the leadership. Daniel, do you want to have a bash at it and then I'll give my thoughts? Yeah, well, I probably just have, have one main point to make about about that. I, I think you're probably better at answering, answering the specifics of it. But just just in general, the the mission will rep- protect its reputation at all costs. So lying is okay certainly blaming the victim is okay as long as they can exonerate one of the leaders or the mission as a whole. And this sort of comes back to the point I made at the start about the revival. So this is really something that they've kind of deified to such an extent that they they take an approach where the ends justify the means and and the ends being protecting what they see as God's work. And they, they are absolutely happy to step over people in order to do that. And I think this is one area where that applies. So if, if a woman has been, you know, groomed or um, sexually assaulted, they, they feel quite comfortable rationalizing it in some way to make it the woman's fault because to, to acknowledge that one of their esteemed leaders is actually in the wrong here would, would sort of throw a spanner into the works in terms of, you know, their, their concept of a man of God and the revival as a whole. Mm. You know, it, it serves the leaders to keep their flock in ignorance. Mm. And that's true for any cult. But when I hear stories of how Elo told two rape victims that I that I absolutely know of and I've, I've spoken to them personally, when they told him that they had been raped, he made them confess their sin then told them that God has forgiven them their sin, and then told them that they're not allowed to discuss it with anyone, including their own mother. And that's what he told me as well. Mm-hmm. And then 
the one girl, she she was 18 years old, and the punishment for her rapist was that he wasn't allowed to sing in the choir for two weeks. Let's take a quick moment here to listen to a brief segment from a 2020 Kwasi Zabantu choral performance. So, yeah, he wasn't allowed right. to participate in the choir singing for two weeks. And that is that is the censure he got. And if I may just add to that, that she went to Elo immediately after the rape. So if she had been taken to hospital or to a police station then, all the evidence was still on her and there would have been a successful prosecution of rape. Instead, she was told that she was forgiven and not to speak of it to anyone. And now Kwasi Sabantu is blaming those very girls, those very women, and saying, well, if it was so bad, why didn't you go to the police? Why haven't you made a case? Uh, I just wanted to add to that as well. One one thing that has come out in a, a number of reports, this has been corroborated by a number of people that Apparently, one of the things that the leadership at Kwasi Zabantu would do in the instance of, a, of, of the rape or sexual assault is they would ask the woman whether she had screamed. And this was based yeah. on the specific verse in the Old Testament, which I can't quote for you now. But so again, the, the, it, it was basically saying, you know, blame, blaming the victim as, as though they had done something wrong, which is just frighteningly uh, ignorant and, you know, callous to, towards the, the women that experienced this. And again, the, the purpose was just really to exonerate the, the people that were in positions of leadership. Mm. It sounds like from what you say, and I, I do remember reading about the, you know, li- lying is okay if it is to in the service of the mission or whatever, that if if it's an ends justify the means kind of a picture, it's almost like the individual is expendable in that scenario. Yeah, absolutely. And And to that I say that if your God needs a human being to lie to protect him or her, then um, have another look at your God, you know. Yes, that would make sense <laughs> to me. <laughs> Daniel, I was just wondering what you would say to others who might be on the verge of joining a similar group and whether there are any particular warning signs you think that they should look out for. Yeah, that's that's a really interesting question just because – even religious groups can take so many different forms. But I suppose that the first thing to, to be aware of with that is that I, I would say that if it seems too good to be true, it probably is. And what I mean by that is that a lot of these types of groups, they actually give off a, a kind of utopian aura, as it were, when you first come into contact with them. I mean, I've heard so many people say about Kwasi Zabantu when they first encountered it, they would use language like, well, it's heaven on earth, or, you know, it's a kind of paradise. And there's there's always this kind of utopian language that, that gets associated with it. And, I mean, this this might just be my, my rather bleak view of the world, but I really don't think that that utopia is to be found here. There's, there's always problems wherever you have people and no, no matter how good or godly or whatever it is you, you think about them, the human beings being what they are, 
they're not going to be able to create this kind of utopia. And mm. secondly, I think in terms of joining a religious community, whether it's a church or a kind of bigger organization like Kossi Zabanku, I would really urge people to make sure that they're doing it for more than just psychological and emotional reasons, which mm-hmm. I think is very difficult for, for most of us because I think a, a lot of what we, we do in terms of decision-making comes, comes down to emotional and psychological needs rather than the rational part of our brain. Mm-hmm. And, but do, you know, do the hard work of examining things critically. And in the case of Christians who are looking to join a particular religious group or church, you know, I would really highly encourage them to read literature and sources outside of that particular denomination. You know, we live in an age now with the, the internet being what it is, where we, we have more information at our fingertips than, than ever in, in human history. And so, you know, particularly for Christians, you know, examine the, the teaching of, of whatever Christian organization you're choosing to join not only in terms of what the Bible says, but also just in terms of church history. And if if it is the case that they are teaching something brand new because they claim God has spoken to them or they claim some kind of special divine revelation, I would just run, really. I mean, I would exercise such extreme caution because the, the likelihood of that being the case is, is virtually none, you know. Mm, mm. And then I suppose that the final point on that is, is don't ignore feelings of cognitive dissonance once you're in a particular group. So if you find that you're battling to hold incongruent ideas in your mind simultaneously or, you know, just questioning the, the, the belief system, the, the foundation, really examine why that tension exists and don't just keep pushing those doubts away. Get an answer that is satisfactory and if you're told by the leaders or by people in the group that it's not a good thing to question, then again, I would say, you know, just, just run out of there because you don't want to be in a restrictive environment where there's some kind of information control taking place. So just, just by way of example, something that comes to mind, I remember when I was in my mid teens and I was still part of Kwasiza Mantu and I, I remember reading biographies of Christians just throughout history who had obviously no ties to, to Kwasiza Bantu because they came before it. And, you know. and I remember reading about the way they, that they got married. And now Kwasiza Bantu has always claimed that their way of getting married is the, the true biblical way. In fact, as recently as a couple of weeks ago, they, they preached an entire sermon about this. And I remember thinking in my mid-teens, how is it possible that all of these, these, these great Christians throughout history somehow missed this rather obvious truth that Kwasi Zabanta would have us believe is God's way of doing things? And it, it was enough to set up a cognitive dissonance in my mind to think maybe these people aren't infallible and maybe there isn't only a black and white way of looking at the world and only one correct way of doing these things. And then just, just the one, one other uh, important point, I think, is that if you're in a group that in any way tries to isolate you by restricting your access to family, to friends, to people outside of the group, I, I think that's definitely a red flag. I mean, in, in the same way that we, we um, understand that that's kind of a red flag in a, in a romantic relationship when you have a partner that's trying to isolate you in some way or cut you off from your family. Same, same thing with these types of groups. I mean, the amount of families that, that Kwasi Zabantu has destroyed where there's no contact between 
the, the loyal followers of the mission and people who aren't part of it is, is just horrendous. So that's also just something to be aware of. Yeah, just just don't don't allow somebody to control your relationships to that extent. Yep. Erica, did you have anything to add to that? And also maybe any advice for someone who might already be in a similar group? Yeah, I think Daniel really nailed it. You know, don't silence your intuition or the cognitive dissonance. And like, do they create an us and them? Like, are they the Mm. ones with with the truth? And do they allow you to question their leaders or their doctrines and that is there a robust discussion can you have a robust discussion with them or do they silence dissent and also how do they treat people who leave are they shunned Mm -hmm. are they just excommunicated or is it okay you know like are they welcome to come for the odd service or you know is there a complete breaking of of bonds for someone who's, who's in a, a group that they might be starting to think, oh, hang on, um, I'm being controlled here. My advice, wow. Well, firstly, well done for listening to this episode. Like <laughs> that's already a huge step <laughs> in, in that you're taking in your journey of breaking free. My advice would be to find somebody on the outside that you know you can absolutely trust. And to, to start, if you're able to confide in that person and, and see, it depends on what kind of group you're in. If you're at Kwasisabantu, you'll need to use subterfuge to leave. But if you're in, in another high control group, start speaking to people outside of this group and, and start fostering relationships outside of the group. And yeah, speak to, Speak to other people and and not only the people in the group. Mm, and sometimes easier said than done, I suppose. Definitely. I was very lucky that I had an aunt I could call. Yeah. Yeah. And a question I, I ask everyone who's ever been in one of these high-demand cultic groups, which I just – there's never a simple answer to it, but I was wondering if I could get each of your thoughts on – how much you think the leader and leaders really believe in what they teach and how much do you think is the pursuit of power or manipulation of people to get what they want? Erica, I might ask you first. Yeah. Sarah, that is such a difficult question. Mm. I would like to believe in the goodness of these people and that they started out being really good, but I have to tell you that I highly doubt their sincerity from the beginning. Um, and I'm talking about the high leadership now, not the people who got sucked in and moved their way up. I think they genuinely probably believe. But as for the founder and his sidekick, oh, no, I, I, nah, nah, look, the, the woman is apparently probably in charge of the place at the moment because the founder has dementia. She's the one who claims she was raised from the dead. And I kind of think, okay, so you were trying to fool people right from the start. So, nah, nah, I don't, I don't think her or Elle or had many good intentions. Mm. Daniel? Yeah, 
I think there's, and Eric has already alluded to this, there's, there's probably a distinction that you have to draw between like the very, very, very top of the leadership. So people like Gail and, you know, the, the very select group of people that are in the inner circle there. I think that the slightly lower down leaders, I do think they probably sincerely believe what they teach. Yes. Mm-hmm. There, there's no doubt in my mind that they actually believe God granted them some special kind of revival many years ago. And in fact, they would, they would go so far as to say that the revival is continuing. But to me, that actually makes the situation more dangerous because, I mean, people, when they feel justified committing evil in the name of God, there's really no rational way to approach them anymore because, hey, they've got God on their side. What, who are mm-hmm. you to tell me that what we're doing is wrong? So there's a sense in which both scenarios are incredibly dangerous. You know, one, if you have narcissistic, manipulative, leaders that are exploiting people for their own gain. But equally, if you have people that are sincere but very misguided and committing the same atrocities. The other thing, I suppose, is that if history has proven anything, it's that it's almost inevitable that when, even if an organization starts off well and without nefarious intentions, if you put in position a leadership that has no accountability, and Kwasisa Bantu does not have any accountability, from the outside, mm. and even within the group, the leaders don't really have a great deal of accountability. Mm. I think human nature is such that most people are going to be corrupted by that in some sense and then start taking advantage of their position. Mm. So I, I really don't know. You know, I, I suspect uh, Erica may be correct in terms of that that there were people right at the start in terms of the, the originators who had nefarious intentions. But even if that wasn't the case, I think very quickly once they – assumed a position of, of power without accountability, they really had free reign to, to you know, take advantage of people. I, yeah, I think that that's such a good point. And I, I totally agree with you. I always keep coming back to it. it just has to be kind of transparency and accountability are the things that we need in any kind of group of human beings who are, you know, forming a community or any kind of governing structure that because otherwise, even even if you had the best people who started out whatever this benevolent dictatorship is, as soon as you've got someone who who rises to the top who isn't so benevolent, then the structure's there for them to take advantage of and become abusive in. Right. Yeah. Erica, many people aren't able to speak about their experiences in cults, which I totally respect, and it's it can be an incredibly difficult and emotionally thing to do. And um, of course, everyone deals with their own trauma differently. Often the groups that have exited can be very litigious or threatening in other ways. I'm sure you were nervous and you you mentioned being worried in other ways about your book, but, you know, speaking out yourself initially. And you're you're clearly very able to talk publicly about your experiences now. So I was wondering if you could just tell me a bit about that path and what got you there and why you feel that you're able to do this work. Yes, so I actually started speaking out against Kwasi Sabantu in 1996, (laughs) which was three years after I left. I think it took me about two years, two and a half years to to understand and realize that, no, I might still be heading for hell, but um, what I experienced was abuse, and that is what the children are still experiencing um, at that time. And I contacted a French village where Kwasi Zabantu wanted to open a school and I, I warned them. And that was the first time that I publicly spoke out against it. And then um, in 2000, I wrote an article for a, for a women's magazine in South Africa about my experiences. And I think that for me, 
it has always been about trying to save the children still growing up there. And the children I was trying to save in 2000 are now adults there, and many of them are still there, but they are having children, you know. So for me, it is absolutely, I'm I'm driven by this knowledge that, okay, they might not be beating children till they bleed in public anymore, but they still believe that you have to break the spirit of a child by the age of three. And how are they doing that? You know, and, and, and so I, I, I do feel for the adults who get sucked in, but I still feel they have some agency. It's the children who are born into this, that, that, that I, I cannot be silent, but yes, it has been, it used to be hard for me to, to speak about it. And I actually went quiet for about 20 years, you know, mm-hmm. partly because I didn't think that I was able to affect any change. And it was now 20 years later when more and more people are willing to speak out and doing so publicly that I, I think we actually might have a chance of, of changing things. I also think, I don't know if if we come to earth with a purpose, but if if that is the case, then I really strongly believe that there's a possibility that I was put through that because I am strong enough and eloquent enough and brave enough to to speak publicly and to keep doing so, even though it's hard, you know? Like, I don't really like the fact that thousands of people now know... mm, like some of my deepest thoughts and some of the things that I've always been most ashamed about. It's it's not like, it's not like making all that stuff public about me doesn't bring me particular joy. I'm doing mm. it in the hope that it helps. And that's my reason for speaking about my experiences and, and writing this book. Yeah. But I also feel very strongly that it is everybody who has any survivor of abuse. It is their decision whether to speak about it or not, whether to go to the police or not. Like nobody mm-hmm. can tell somebody who endured abuse what they should do with that experience. So mm-hmm. for me, it is speaking out and being very public about what happened to me and the ramifications that had on my life. But that's not the case for everybody. I don't know if I mm. answered your question. No, you did beautifully and I I completely agree with you and it's absolutely everyone's personal choice as to how they approach that but I do I you know I do want to say I just really admire you for it and for me with the the podcast project and everything else around that it's been you know everything I've learned is from people who've who've been able to have the strength to speak out about their experiences and it's really helped me to understand these dynamics and how they operate. And hopefully as it goes out to a wider audience, we get more of an understanding in society as well. So we can hopefully make some change and and try and stop more of the victim blaming narratives that come out. Yes. And, and I just want to say about the, the series of four essays that Daniel wrote, the amount of ex members who, and who were children growing up there and have left who said to me, wow, that that is my experience and 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 Daniel is able to put it in so much I mean he's just absolutely brilliant in the way he highlights what happened and then 
the effects that have. And I think I, I know that he has already helped so many people just by those four essays. So Daniel, please keep writing, you know, don't like, don't stop writing. Well, thank you. Thank you for that. You should, you should know that somebody raised in Crossy's Avantu isn't particularly good at receiving compliments. So I'm, <laughs> I'm blushing here at the moment, but, um, <laughs> no, and, and similarly, I mean, something I had in mind to just say uh, at the end of this con- conversation is actually the exact same thing to, to Erinka. I mean, the, the amount of just, it's, it's really opened the floodgates, not, not just the book, but Erica's involvement with the, the documentary and the, the podcast series and some of the news articles. I mean, it's given permission and a platform for people to, to come forward and, and share their stories. And, you know, I, I, I think there's, there's a great number of people that are extremely grateful to, to Erica and the other people that are involved with that. And what is it, what is it like for you to be speaking about your experiences as well, Daniel? I think it's been cathartic in a sense. So even though I left Kossi Zabantu quite a long time ago now, yeah, it's, it's been, it, there's been a tremendous feeling of, of solidarity, just realizing that what, what I experienced and, and honestly, my story pales in comparison to, to some of the abuse that we've heard about now. Um, but just realizing that even some of the psychological effects is, is not something that I alone suffered, but that there's so many of the, the people that are going through the same sorts of things. And then, yeah, I, I, Eric has already touched on this. I mean, I, I had people reaching out to me as well after writing the essays, you know, complete strangers, people I'd never met at Crossy's Abantu, and just saying things like, you know, you've, you've described my, my childhood, you know, to a T kind of thing. That was obviously tremendously encouraging just to realize that it was resonating with people and hopefully providing some small measure of, of healing just to have the recognition of saying, yes, what you experienced was abuse, despite what Kossi's Zabanda was trying to tell you now in response to the allegations. And your your story does matter and, and the pain you've experienced matters. I think you've both sort of touched on what the outcomes that you kind of would like from sharing your stories in terms of uh, helping others to recognise the, what they've been through. But I, I wondered whether you think there's any real possibility of uh, Kwasi Zabantu being capable of changing for the better. Um, <laughs> I have a feeling that Erica by nature is much more of an optimist than I am, but um, <laughs> I, I'm somewhat cynical and pessimistic about their ability to change, mm. mostly just because they have not given any indication that they are genuinely remorseful. They have not even really... The, the things that they have conceded in the way of abuse, it was because they were literally left with no choice because the, the evidence was so overwhelming against them. Mm, mm. But there has never been a time at which they've initiated a, a genuine uh, apology or attempt to provide healing to the victims that were in their care, and I use that term very loosely, and I, I think without an, a, a genuine acknowledgement that they are actually in the wrong, that, that they're not God's special people, but that they have perpetrated a, a systematic level of abuse that literally has destroyed a couple of generations now, I really don't see a great deal of cause for optimism. And I, I think what's become clear in the way they've responded to the, the news stories and the allegations and the investigations is that their, their hubris is, is such now that they have really given a very strong indication that they had no intentions of 
changing. So mm-hmm. yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm very, I'm, I'm sad to say I'm very pessimistic about the situation. I completely agree with Daniel. And yes, I am the Pollyanna who always sees <laughs> the pretty picture that it can be, but I, that place has to be shut down not the place there's there's amazing industries and everything that could actually it garners millions and millions and millions of rands every year but those millions are not being funneled back into the community in order to provide proper health care medical aid retirement funds uplifting the surrounding community. I mean, if you drive to Kwasisabanti, you drive through a community that they are still living in abject poverty, and many of them are mm-hmm. working at Kwasisabanti, but they're not members of the, the religious organization. They're just basically day laborers earning a minimum wage. So no, the leadership and everybody in any position of leadership at Kwasisabantu, they firstly, they have to be brought to book. They have to be taken to court. They have to account for their crimes. And secondly, they need to be removed from there. And it's it's a huge infrastructure. There's a school. There's the Aquele Water Factory. There's a very successful farming operation. And I really don't know how one goes about dismantling the leadership and making sure that the profits from those things don't go into the leaders' pockets for them to squander 160 million at least, but for, for it to actually be run as an organization that really contributes and gives everything back to the community. I don't know how that happens. I'm a writer. I don't know these things, but I know that that is what must happen. I just wanted to add to that as well, just because we've been talking about Kwasi Zabantu, not only in terms of the, the mission station in South Africa, but the, the branches. So, so mm-hmm. something that people may not know is that most of the European and the Australian branch of Kwasi Zabantu have since cut ties with KSB. Now, while, while I'm quietly optimistic that at least they've taken that step, I think they they also need to accept responsibility for having affiliated themselves and perpetuated some of the same abuse, even if it wasn't the physical kind of abuse that was taking place in South Africa. And the reason that I say that is a a while ago, like a a year or two ago, I had a very brief exchange with a current member of the of what was formerly the Australian branch of Kwasi Zabantu. And his his I, I basically was just asking him you know, what, what the deal was in the church now in terms of their relationship to Kwasi Zabantu. And the, the response he gave me was that, well, any idiot can see that Kwasi Zabantu is, is a problem. And I'm not by nature an angry person, but it actually did upset me a little bit because that certainly wasn't the response I got from the leadership when I made them aware of the problems. And so I think, I think what's, what's problematic is that they're letting themselves off the hook far too easily by just trying as as much as possible to quietly slip away and Mm. pretend that they were never a part of this. For example, the school that they planted here in Australia used to be called Domino Civite. Well, that that became rather awkward for them because a quick Google search of that name doesn't bring up particularly happy stories. And now they've they've just renamed it to something far more generic. And that, that frankly, to me, is just not good enough. You, You have to accept responsibility that you perpetuated at the very least spiritual and psychological abuse and that you need to own that and do something about it. 
Yeah, and and that's what the that's what the Swiss school is supposedly doing by appointing two psychologists who are not related at all to to speak to uh, the children who were pupils there. And um, so we'll see what, what happens with that. But if I may, Sarah, just to read a very short paragraph from my book, right, right towards the end. Quester Zabantu has not shown an ounce of remorse. They want us to move on. They say they want their victims to contact them for reconciliation. Why? And then I go on about how wrong it is of them to expect us to go to them. And then I say, this desire to have people move on is typical of abusers. They want their victims to let it go already. No, we will not be moving on anytime soon. And do you know why? Because without genuine remorse, without reparations to victims, and without a stated intention to change behavior, they will do it again, given the chance. Abusers stop abusing when under scrutiny. When the scrutiny goes away, they pick right up where they left off. And therefore, the scrutiny cannot be lifted until they have been held fully accountable, until they have publicly acknowledged how they abused people and how they covered up that abuse, how they knowingly allowed abusers to live among them or quietly asked them to leave without protecting the most innocent among them. The leaders at Kwasisabantu refuse to recognize that they have done anything wrong. And that's the bottom line. They are spending a lot of money repairing their image in the public eye but they are not spending any of that money in actually contacting the survivors who have spoken out they're spending a lot of money making sure that people question us and question my motives and question my account they devote a lot of time to that including my mother and sister but they have not once reached out to me in 25 years that I've been speaking out against them. They have not once reached out to me to pick up the phone and say, Erica, we are sorry. Not once. I'm jumping in here to play you some audio from a Kwasizabuntu devotion live streamed on the 9th of September 2020. This is Erica's mother speaking alongside a Zulu translator. If you happen to meet up with my youngest daughter, you can tell her her mother is still waiting at the foot of the cross. There is still time that the Redeemer can uproot that root of bitterness. And save her life. Shall we pray together? Lord, have mercy on us that you in your great mercy, we will never give in to allow a root of bitterness to grow in our lives. Because it has the power to defile so many. Back to the interview again. And they're not spending any of that time you know, trying to mend any bridges between families that have been alienated or no. to do any of those kinds of things. And they're yeah. still fracturing families in 2021 to this day. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I did think there was, in this case, there is kind of one thing that some people can do. I guess maybe that's only in, in South Africa, which is to perhaps boycott uh, the the water. Yeah, because the, the only, I believe that the only thing they respond to is commercial interests and having their commercial interests potentially damaged. 
I don't think they respond to any other kind of pressure. Yeah. So that's a quelle water that they can avoid. Is that correct? Yes, absolutely. But please, if you're in the UK or in the EU, don't stop buying South African avocados because there are many, many amazingly wonderful avocado farmers in South Africa. What needs to happen is the export company, Halls and Sons, they need to investigate Kwasi Sabantu because they're exporting their avos and, and garnering their millions of rands with that as well. Mm-hmm. Well, I think that that's everything that I had on my list. And I did want to ask if there was anything else that either of you would like to talk about that we haven't covered. Well, I'm just going to, um, I'm sure you're going to do this too, but I'm just going to plug Erica's book a little bit. <laughs> so, you know, go, go out and buy Mission of Malice by Erica Bornman. It's an excellent read. Um, it gives you a very, very good oversight of buses and London. Thank you, Daniel. And um, <laughs> links, links, links will be in the show notes. <laughs> and Sarah, I just want to thank you so much for the work you've been doing for a long time now. In, in, I think what I love so much about your podcast is that you not only give the survivors a platform to tell their stories, but you, you actually investigate how these groups operate where you are i think you're doing really important work in helping people understand the mechanisms of these groups and the devastation they um, wreak on everything and everyone and i i think you're doing such amazing work so i just want to say thank you to you and thanks to daniel as well i mean we've never met he was he was basically I think about to be born or just born when I left, you know. So so we our time at Kwasisabantu occupied different decades. But he's like, yeah, I mean, like we've just really connected and him bringing his intellect and, and understanding to the question, he's just been able to put so much into words that has already helped so many people. And I'm hoping that, that we are actually also stopping people from getting involved and not just right. making the people who are involved, but actually stopping potential joiners from joining. And that's also really important work. Yeah, I think that's, yeah, that's right. If there's more opportunities for someone to Google a group and be able to read about uh, varying experiences that might cause them to think twice, then that's um, mm. definitely helpful. Well, that's very kind of you to say, Erica. It's really very generous. And it's, I think you're both very eloquent about your experiences and the wider understanding of how this particular group operates. Uh, it's been such a pleasure to speak with you both. And I really appreciate you taking the time to, to explain this one to me. It, it's been, yeah, fantastic. Well, thank you for having us on. You're very welcome. <laughs> <laughs> thank you so much. Thanks so much for listening, and you can find links to Erica and Daniel's work in the show notes. If you've been personally affected by involvement in a cult or would like to support those who have been, 
You can find support or donate to Cult Information and Family Support if you're in Australia via cifs.org.au. And you can find resources outside of Australia with the International Cultic Studies Association via icsahome.com. If you or someone you know is in crisis or needs support right now, please call Lifeline on 13 11 14 in Australia or find your local crisis centre via the International Association for Suicide Prevention website at iasp.info. Let's Talk About Sects is produced and presented by me, Sarah Steele. Sound design and music is by Joe Gould. A huge thanks to Erica Bornman and Daniel Schricker for sharing their stories with me for this episode. You can access ad-free episodes and support the production of this independent podcast via Patreon, patreon.com slash ltaspod, or with a one-off donation or merch purchase. Supporters are also currently helping me to write a book that draws together the themes across Let's Talk About Sects. And for those wondering, my manuscript is on track, though it turns out writing a book is a pretty overwhelming process. This gives me even more admiration for people like Erica who've managed to publish one. If you have as many lovely things to say about the show as Erica did, a free way to show your support is by dropping a quick review on Apple Podcasts. Thanks for listening, and I'll catch you again soon. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.